we're in First Peter 2 today, and uh, one of the favorite sections uh, for me of the Bible, and it answers this question, who are you? It was a young man who was a college student at the university, and, and uh, he, he uh, had a tragedy in their family life, and his father died suddenly. So he was called home for a couple of weeks as they were kind of putting life back together again. And uh, he had been an honor student. Everything was great. And then all of a sudden he came back to school and his grades were falling. He wasn't showing up for class. And uh, the dean of students met with him, thought it was probably part of the grief process for him. And it was. Uh, but as he talked to the young man, he said, I just want to know what we can do to help you, what's going on here. And the young man said, uh, when I went to my dad's funeral, it was pretty hard for me just to get through that because I love my dad so much. But after the funeral, as we were talking around for a few days as family and supporting each other, my uncle said, you know, it's just, I know it, it's great that he was such a good father to you. Uh, and he said, well, what do you mean? He says, well, you know, you were adopted, right? And the, the boy said, that just threw me into a tizzy mentally, and I just came back to school, but I don't know who I am anymore. Uh, I, I'm not sure, you know, the, the man I look to as my dad is gone, and I'm not sure now who my biological father was, and then I start noticing that I look different than people in my family. I, I have some, uh, you know, differences in, in my appearance and even how I think at times. And I'm just trying to figure out who I am. And I think Peter gives us one of the best answers to that. Here was a Peter, uh, a picture of Peter that one of the uh, Italians uh, did that I think is, uh, it, it uh, reaches out to me a lot. If you study the book of Acts for the first half of the book, the first 12 chapters, the star of the book is Peter preaches the sermon on Pentecost. Uh, you remember Jesus told him on the beach after the resurrection to uh, feed my sheep, and he does that. And so he writes this, uh, what we call First Peter, as a letter, and the letter was to be passed around in the churches in Asia Minor, part of the world that we call Turkey. And it was a, a circular letter that they would pass around so that they could all read it and learn from it. And from here, from, uh, from Peter, about uh, the things that he talks about. Uh, in the beginning of it here, uh, Eusebius told us a couple of things about, about Peter. Peter appears to have preached in Pontus, Galatia, Bithynia, Cappadocia, and Asia to the Jews of the dispersion. And at last, having come to Rome, he was crucified head downwards, for he had requested that he might suffer in this way. The story is told that at the end of his life, he's, he's crucified in Rome, and he didn't feel that he was worthy to die the same way Jesus died. So he asked that they would crucify him upside down so that he could at least pay honor to Christ in that way, and they did. First Peter 5, I like your sister church here in Babylon, which is kind of uh, a reference really to, to Rome. Uh, it, there was really nothing in Babylon per se uh, that we think of as Babylon, but Rome was often referred to as, you know, if I say to you, uh, what's the name of this city? Sin City. Las Vegas. You know, we get these kind of connections. Uh, what's the Big Apple? 
you, you know, you connect things. And, and in that part of the world, Babylon was referenced to Rome. And he says, uh, our sister church here in Babylon sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. And then 1 Corinthians 9, he says, don't we have the right to bring a believing wife with us as the other, other apostles and the Lord's brothers do, and as Peter does? So I think sometimes we, we see these people kind of going around the church to church in the ancient world, and we, we, we don't stop and think that, that, again, most of them had their wives with them when they, when they traveled and with what they did. And evidently, Peter was one of those people. I mean, if you, if you, we don't know a thimbleful of his wife, but we, we know that she was, you know, faithful companion to him in, in the work that, that he did throughout his life, and that's significant. First Peter 2, we're going to start answering that question of who are you. And in First Peter chapter 2, we uh, have, starting in verse 4, it says, You are coming to Christ, who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. He was rejected by people, but he was chosen by God for great honor. I, I've kind of put into the box, can you see how the you are is into the box there? And I've kind of put, put it that way so that you can kind of see how often he uses that phrase. So he's answering the question to all of these people, new Christians. This letter was probably written in about 64 AD. Uh, so it was written very early in the life of the church. Uh, most people think that Jesus was probably born about uh, somewhere between 5 to 7 A.D. So you, you figure his life after that, he dies at about 33. That would put it about 38 to 39 A.D. he dies. So this is written within 25 years of, uh, of, the, of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So uh, these are all new believers in a, in a, a different part of the world. Uh, again, Turkey is very different than Israel. And, and so he's trying to explain to them, you are coming uh, to Christ. The, the word coming there is an interesting word. word. It's prosyukasthe. Uh, which is the same, it's the same root word that our word proselyte comes from. Someone who is moving in a direction, somebody who is growing, somebody who is studying, somebody who has an intentionality. And he says, your intentionality is that you're doing that, you're coming to Christ. And, and then it uses one of the metaphors that he uses. If you look at 1 Peter 1, he uses three different metaphors about, about who Christ is. And, uh, and here he's another one. He, he is the living cornerstone of God's temple. In other words, the most important stone in any building was the cornerstone. Everything was squared up to the cornerstone, and if that wasn't laid properly, everything in the building could potentially be crooked or offline. So it's the most important thing, and the most important thing in, in God's temple is Christ, Jesus Christ. He was rejected by people, but he was chosen by God for great honor. Now, if you would go back and look in the sermon that he preaches on the day of Pentecost, you'll, you'll see that he is repeating almost exactly what he preached on that day. One of, I, I like that, that Peter is the writer who says this, I remind you of those things that you already know. Because that makes sense to me as I grow older. I remind you of the things that you know. Because a lot of times, I don't need a whole lot of new information. I just need to sometimes be reminded of what's important in life. In the, the, the next verse, he says, And you are living stones that God is building, into his spiritual temple, 
What's more, you are his holy priests. Through the mediation of Jesus Christ, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. Uh, what is the purpose of a brick in, in our world? Well, if, if a brick is going to really find its purpose, it probably has to go into a wall, which has to go into a building. It has to, a, a brick just by itself is not really good for a whole lot. But a brick that's part of a building has significance. And he says, you know what? Here's what you guys are. As, as a church, uh, you are alive in Christ. You have Christ's life in you. You are living stones. You're not dead. And, and each of you is being built into this place where God is worshipped. And it's not meant even to be, a, a, you know, like this building or something. It's meant to be uh, kind of this metaphor of the church. Uh, Paul does the same thing. If you look at the, I, the images of the church in the New Testament, uh, there was a, a great book written by Earl Rodmacher years ago about images of the church in the New Testament. And he talks, it's a shocking almost when you see how many different pictures there are. You've got, the, it's like an army. You've got, it's like an architecture. It's like a building. Uh, one of the most familiar ones is you're like a body. You, you, you know, you're like a, a physical being. And it compares the church to all of these, these analogies that we can see the reality of in life. And here it's, you know, you are being built into, uh, uh, that, that God is using to build into his spiritual temple. Uh, and in essence, part of it is universal, the church around the world, Christians everywhere coming together. But a, a lot of it is actually in the local community where you live. Um, how many of you live right in Stanwood proper? Raise your hand. Okay. How many of you live outside of the physical limits of Stanwood? Raise your hand. Okay. But we all come together because this is a place where, where we worship. Uh, a lot of you, some of you remember Bruce and Sue Barnes who were part of your church years ago. Well, the reason my wife is my wife in part was because her roommate, Sue Barnes, you know, put us out on a date. So uh, we owe a lot to Bruce and Sue throughout our life. And it says here that uh, the purpose of that building is to be alive, to be functional, to have VBS, to do stuff, uh, to have Bible studies, to help people grow in Christ. And it says, you are his holy priests. In the Old Testament, he's again writing primarily to Jews. And they understood what the priest does. You know, the priest represents you before God. The priest offers sacrifice for sin for you. The priest offers prayers to God for you. If you walk into the holy place in the temple, you have the altar of incense where there was this uh, smoke going up constantly to represent the prayers of God's people. You know, you've got the altar where the sacrifices, all of those things were the role of the priest. And Peter says, you have to understand in what God God is building today, it's different than what God did in Israel. He's building a living church of living stones with a living cornerstone to reflect the growth. And, and you are the priests who, who pray, who, who offer sacrifice, who help, you know, do, uh, teach people and develop them. And through the mediation of Jesus Christ, you're able to do that. Through Christ, you're able to offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. One of the great 
foundation stones of the Reformation was the priesthood of all believers. That you do not need somebody to represent you before God. You have direct access to God. You can pray to God yourself. You don't need to go through a minister or a priest or somebody. You have direct access to God, and spiritually you have responsibilities before God to represent uh, him well and to serve him as, as a, any spiritual leader would do in, in the world. Matthew 16, uh, Simon Peter's role in Jesus' life Jesus asked his disciples, you know, he asked first, who, who do people say that I am? And they told him. And they said, well, then who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Peter has a significant role as such because he's the first person in the world to recognize that and acknowledge that, uh, uh, you know, with his words. But in a couple of verses later, verse 18, uh, Jesus says, now I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. Now, do you see on the screen that we've kind of contrasted yellow Peter with uh, rock Peter? Because a lot of people say, well, it's very obvious, especially, you know, the Roman Catholic Church, it's very obvious that the church is built on this hierarchy of uh, papal leadership, and Peter's the first pope, and throughout history we've been able to pass this role on to other people. The trouble I have with that is, let me put the, the words a little different. So go forward one, uh, Megan. In, in Greek, the first word, Peter, is in the male, patras. And when he says, and upon this rock, it changes it to patra, fem feminine. So if it was talking about Peter, it would be patras, patras. It would be male, male. But it's not. It says, you are a male, Peter, a male rock, and upon this female rock, you will build my church. So it, it's clearly talking about this affirmation he makes that you are the Christ, you're the Messiah, you are the anointed one of God, uh, and you are uh, the, the son of the living God. This is the foundation stone of the church that Christ brings to us. Uh, it says... I like this quote from uh, Bloom. The great new truth Peter states here is the revelation that through Jesus Christ, i.e. through his work on the cross, every Christian is part of a new priestly order. This truth of the priesthood of all believers was rediscovered and restressed during the Reformation. It means that every Christian has immediate access to God, that he serves God personally, and that he ministers to others that he has something to give. And again, one of the key points there is how different that was for life under the Jewish system, where the priest was the priest. And now it's different in, in the new system that Christ has established, that Jesus creates this service uh, inside. And, you know, a lot of, you think about other places where it talks about in the Bible, it says, confess your sins to who? To one another. Uh, you know, pray for one another. It, it takes a lot of the role that used to go to just the priest and puts it on us as a, as a group of people to serve and honor each other with. Um, Verse 6, as the scriptures say, 
This is a quote from Isaiah 28:16. I am placing a cornerstone in Jerusalem, chosen for great honor. One of the things about Peter's writing, by the way, is constant quotations from the Old Testament. We're going to see three of them in this passage. I'm placing a cornerstone chosen for great honor for anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. Uh, I'm going to say something now that's quite profound, more, more than probably many of you will even fully understand, but some of you will get it right away. Uh, I, I deal in some of my work with a lot of conflict in different churches. And here's the basis of conflict in churches as I see it. It's one word, trust. Uh, all of a sudden, um, maybe the leaders of the church lose their trust in the pastor. Or the pastor loses their, his trust in the leaders of the church. And we start to develop problems. Or the people don't trust the leaders. And uh, as, as, at its core, it's a difficult thing. If some of you who are interested in reading more of this, look up, uh, there's a great TED Talk on, on trust. I think it's called The Trust Edge by uh, David Horsacker. And it talks about the nine pillars of trust. In other words, you have to build trust with people. Nobody owes you trust. You have to build trust. You have to create trust in your life. And I can guarantee you, if you don't have trust, you're going to have a heck of a time raising your kids, especially when they're teenagers. You're going to have a heck of a time living together as husband and wife if you don't trust each other. Uh, it, it's a key thing in life. But here, here is the key point Peter is making. He's quoting the Old Testament. Anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. He says one thing about trusting Jesus is you will never be sorry for that. You will never be disgraced by aligning yourself with him. Verse 7, yes, you who trust him recognize the honor that God has given him. But for those who reject him, here's a quotation from Psalm 118, the stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. So why is Peter talking about Jesus as a cornerstone? Because the Old Testament talked about the significance of building something and, and having the cornerstone uh, in good shape and set. So he builds off of that Old Testament image to say this is exactly what Christ is talking about. The, the favorite part, I like actually the older translations. You see this first start there? Yes, you who trust him recognize the honor. God has given him. In, in some of the older versions, here's how it's translated. To those of you who believe, he is precious. He is precious. Uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, as a young man, was going to a little tiny church out in the country, just a couple of handfuls of people. And uh, as he was going with his best friend, uh, he said to his best friend, uh, I, I'm, I want you to know I've been praying for you, and I'm going to be praying for you today as you give the message. And his best friend stops and says, Charles, I thought you were giving the sermon today. <laughs> and he found out on the way to church that he was preaching that day. And, and so uh, this is the verse that he chose to preach on. And as he writes here, I do not think I could have said anything upon any other text because Christ was precious to my soul and I was in the flush of my youthful love and I could not be silent when a precious Jesus was the subject. Um, are you sure you're a Christian? Yes. 
Well, here's a test for it. Is he precious to you? To those of you who believe he is precious, is he precious to you? Because one of the evidences of him being precious to you, or as the text used in our verse, honor, of honoring him is one of the great proofs that you are an authentic believer and follower of Jesus Christ. To those of you who believe, just the simplicity of that statement, I can understand why as a young man he's on fire and he's preaching that if, if, if he is who he says he is, he's precious to you. He's your life. He says, uh, verse 8, here's a quote from Isaiah 8, and he is the stone that makes people stumble, the rock that makes them fall. You see, it doesn't work for everybody. and acknowledges that. Statistics I see probably, you know, a lot of people in America, let's, let's say optimistically, half the people in America say they're Christians. By the way, numbers going down every year right now. But how many people, if you ask them, what's the basis that you're going to heaven on, which is George Barna, he differentiates a true believer from somebody who just thinks they're a Christian by how they say what their position in heaven is going to be. If they say they're going to be in heaven because they have accepted and they trust Jesus Christ to give them everlasting life, they're going to be in heaven. If, if they say, well, I'm going to, you know, I think my good works are going to stand and that God's going to see what a great person I am, that's why I'm going to be in heaven. He doesn't consider that to be an authentic Christian. And so the, the question uh, for a lot of us is, uh, is what is the basis of, of our eternal life? And is it truly just Christ and Christ alone? And there are people who stumble over that. They don't believe that. And it says they stumble because they do not obey God's word. And so they meet the fate that was planned for them. I, I like the, the how, you know, a lot of times we talk about predestination and free will. You see how that, that statement brings both in? They stumble because they do not obey God's word, free will. And as they meet the fate that was planned for them, predestination. In one sentence, you've got both these doctrines that seem to conflict in our limited human minds, but actually in God's economy fit together. Again, now we come to the heart of the matter for me. Here's all the you are's, but you are not like that. Thank, thank you, Jesus. Uh, of all the people in the world, thanks for helping it to make sense to us and for saving us. You are a chosen people. You are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. Over 300 times in the Old Testament, it talks about the people of God, God's people. And it was Israel. And now Peter says, you know who God's people are now? It's the people who are built in this new living temple that worships God and honors the Lord Jesus Christ, who is precious and above all to be honored. You're not like them. <laughs> Raising our kids... There were times where we, we had to say to our kids, well, these other kids at school are doing it. These other kids who go to church are doing it. These are, and we say, you know what? You're not like them. You're, you're not like them. Or sometimes uh, when our kids would do something wrong or do something bad, I, I'd say, well, you know, why did you, why did you tell that lie? That's not like you. Uh, you know, we try to define their character for them by saying, 
you know, what, what you, who you are and what you are and how you live as part of this family. And there were times that they had to know that what they did, we viewed as kind of an aberration in life. You are not like that, but you are a chosen people. Story of a missionary who was asked a lot about this predestination free will. He tried to explain it to a group of people in Africa. And the next morning, early in the morning, an African uh, knocks on, on his door and asks if he can talk to the missionary. And he, he says, sure. And uh, he says, uh, I, I couldn't hardly sleep all night last night. And the missionary's thinking, oh boy, I got this guy all messed up now in his head. And he said, I just can't believe that God would choose me. It kept me awake all night to believe that God would choose me. But it says, uh, I like the way Erwin Lutzer talks about it. When you get to heaven, over the top of the archway of heaven, it says, uh, whosoever will may come. And when you walk through that gateway and you look on the back of that gateway, it says, chosen before the foundations of the world. You know, the, both things are true. And the fact, brothers and sisters, that God chose us. You know, 1 Corinthians 1, he doesn't choose the best and the brightest. He chooses sometimes things that are not even respected by this world we live in. He, he chooses things that may seem insignificant to be significant in the kingdom. And, uh, and you are that. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God... For he called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. Are you really a Christian? Well, are you still living in darkness? Or as you know, you're studying first, second, third John, walk in the light. One of the great proofs, one of the three great proofs of a believer is are they walking in the light? Are they living their life in the light and not trying to skirt it and live in the darkness, actually? You can show others, here's, here's your job, here's your job today, here's your job this week. Show people the goodness of God. Well, how do you do that? The way you act, the way you talk, the way you live, the evidence of, of your life. The old line in the 70s was, if you were convicted of being a Christian, would they have enough evidence to convict you if you were accused of it? If you were accused of being a Christian, would they have enough evidence to convict you? Where's the evidence of your life to show that you show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of the darkness into his, his wonderful light? Once you had no identity as a people, now you're God's people. Once you received no mercy, now you have received God's mercy. So who's his primary audience? Jewish people who have been dispersed in throughout Turkey. And they would know right away when they saw that, that, that those two you are's, you are God's people, and you have now received God's mercy, would be direct correlations to the book of Hosea. Because in Hosea 1.6, then the Lord said to Hosea about his children, his daughter first, Say to uh, name her Lo Ruhamah, which means not love, for I will no longer show love to Israel. No mercy for Israel anymore. And then Hosea 1 9 has a son. Call him Lo Ami, which means not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. 
So Hosea says, say this to Israel. I don't love you anymore and you're not my people. And so very significant for Peter to say, once you had no identity as a people because God withdrew it, but now you are God's people. What, what originally had been the province of, of Israel alone is now you who are believers in this cornerstone named Jesus Christ. You are God's people. Once you received no mercy, now you have received. You weren't loved, now you're loved. You have received mercy, unmerited fineness, unearned love. I love a story, uh, Dr. A.J. Cronin wrote a, a, a story about, he was a doctor, and he wrote a book called Adventures in Two Worlds. It was about a, a pl time when he was a doctor up in Canada. And in the town where he was a doctor, there was a family called the Adams Family. No, not that Adams family. Uh, a real Adams family, normal, normal people. And the Adams family, uh, you know, Mr. Adams had two teenage daughters, and then they had that little P.S. blessing of a little boy named Sammy, who was about five, six years old. And uh, Mr. Adams absolutely loved Sammy. Sammy was his life. Every, and Sammy loved his father. Everywhere his father would go, he would go. He would, he would, you know, love to sit on the tractor with him. He would love to help him with, with work in the barn. Everything his father did, he wanted to do. He wanted to be with his dad. And Mr. Adams absolutely loved that boy and being able to show him and teach him what it was like to live on a farm. Um, during the end of World War II, there were a number of orphans and the Adams family decided to adopt a boy called Pe uh, Paul Petrofinalski. And Paul was an orphan from, uh, from uh, Sicily that they adopted into their family in Canada. And Dr. Adams would take care of this whole family and their medical needs and, and uh, got to know him. And Paul was just a troubled kid. He was a pain in the neck kid. He was a difficult, he was always hard to make happy, he was always causing discipline problems at home, at school, everywhere he lived. He was just a very challenging young man. Uh, one day, uh, he and Sammy were out playing, and he talked Sammy into going with him into a, a, a little pool, and it was very polluted. It was a place that you were not allowed to swim, you were not supposed to swim, and they were there. And, uh, and Sammy uh, caught some kind of an of a infection or something. And despite uh, Dr. Cronin's, you know, best efforts, uh, he just was not getting well. Uh, you can imagine how Mr. Adams felt when he was waking up one morning, going in to, uh, to check on his son Sammy to see how he was doing. And... Uh, here he found uh, Paul Petrofinalski with his arm around his son. And whereas Sammy had gotten over it, Paul had not. And he was still really sick. And so now we have this young boy who probably is fighting for his life. And all he wanted was to be with his buddy Sammy. It was the only thing he cared about, the only thing he valued in that family. And so he finds this boy draped all over his son. And uh, as a result of it, Sammy gets worse and ends up dying. About a year later, Dr. Cronin is walking in town. And he uh, sees Mr. Adams with Paul, 
who had recovered. And he looks at him, he's talking to Mr. Adams about things, and then he, he shakes his head and he looks at Paul and he says, you know, that Paul, Petro, whatever, that kid does not know what he has. And Mr. Adams looked at Dr. Cronin, put his arm around Paul and says, you won't have trouble with his name anymore. His name is Paul Adams. We've adopted him. The one who killed his son has now become part of his family. And I see such a great power of the crucifixion of Christ and sacrificing his life so that we could have life. In Jeremiah 31, it says, This is the covenant I'll make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I'll put my law in their minds, write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And so based on that now, when he says in verse 9, you are those people, you are those priests, you are that holy nation, you are God's very own possession. He has adopted you to be part of his family. He's including you in, in, in life. You are a chosen people. You are royal. Who are you? You should all be dressed up like princesses today, I guess. Because in God's economy, you are all significant. And as a result, what do you do? How about this? Just go out and show everybody the goodness of God. Be honest, be truthful, be forthright, be direct, be loving, be kind, be merciful. Be the kind of person that people want to be about. Be a good tipper at the restaurant. Be cordial with people that you meet daily life. And try to especially be nice to the people you work with because those are sometimes the hardest. There was an old song that says, you always hurt the one you love. Don't hurt them. Be loving and kind to your, your spouse, your family, your kids. First Corinthians says it this way, whatever you do, you must do all of it for the glory of God. Read it together with me. Ready? Whatever you do, you must do. Let's stand, and would you close with this prayer with me? Would you read this together with me? It's a children's prayer. Let's read it together. I will do the best I can with what I have, where I am, for Jesus' sake today. One more time. I will do the best I can with what I have, where I am, for Jesus' sake today. Amen. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord God lift up his face toward you and may he give you peace. In the name of our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And all of us said? Okay, God bless.